Hello everybody, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 80 on Norway. The capital of this country is Oslo, and the name Norway actually comes from Old English, where the word Norbweg was used around the year 880 to describe the Atlantic northern coast of Norway, which was by this word meant northern way or way leading to the north. And this kind of gives a, like this plays into the theory of the origin of the Norwegian language name, which is Norwegian. And Norway has actually got more gold medals in Winter Olympic sports than any other country in the world. And on top of that, Norway also has a possession of the island called Svalbard, which on this island, it sees 110 days of uninterrupted night per year. And then at the other end of the calendar, it gets 90 days of uninterrupted light because this island is located within the Arctic Circle. And that means the exposure to sun it gets is very, very odd. But the other... 165 days it gets of the year are relatively normal. Another thing on this island is also this emergency seed vault, which actually holds millions of plant species that can be planted and grown in case of an apocalyptic event or major crop disease spreads across the area. And Norway was the first country to ban deforestation in one of their many efforts to kind of get a more green power system. Another part of that is that actually 90% of the country's current electricity and power comes from hydroelectricity, which is like by dams and stuff. And the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded in Oslo, the capital, every single year. So there's a whole lot of really cool things about this country, a whole lot of things to get into. And in this case, we're going to get into a whole lot of history and how it's become the really well-developed, democratic, and famous nation it is today that is known for so many things. But the most important one is that it's always kind of ranked highest on the Human Development Index and ranked highest in just development in general, human rights, all sorts of those things. So we're going to get into that super soon. And before that, I just want to say... Thank you all so much for being here. I really hope you enjoy. And my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and this is Norway. Let's do this thing. Our origins begin after the last ice age, when this is when the first people arrived onto this land. People arrived here and then formed into the Forsna Henspaka culture, which was the nation's first farmers to adhere to agriculture as opposed to hunting and gathering and fishing that was very common in the area. There are cave paintings that dot the land and were recorded from around 6500 BC to 2500 BC. They talk about hunting and different old rituals that can at least be prescribed from the readings that we get out of these paintings. And then the Bronze Age occurred from 1750 to 500 BC. This is where the Smarakite culture came from. And then they grew as well into the Iron Age, which lasted for another thousand years or so. And these cultures were recorded in many of the old Icelandic sagas. So that's why there's a big connection between Norway and Iceland. And interaction with Roman-occupied Gaul, which is kind of the German area now, was common. And the trade of metalwork between early Norwegians and Rome was very common. And as the Western Roman Empire fell around the 5th century of the Common Era, gold, riches, and great craftsmanship started to be really present in Norway as we have discovered through archaeological work. Early growth within this nation started around the 3rd century when the Norwegian runic inscriptions were made and more land was being settled by the early Norwegians. The government system was started in more organized sense around the 800s, and states based on family plans were formed, and the tings, or things, were held. There were small regional meetings to negotiate disputes, and Iceland, if you want to watch that episode, you could learn, about, about, learn a lot about the Althing, which was their really hard system of government that created their constitution, and it's used in some way today still. So these things 
developed into the Lagting, which were larger meetings of more regions that made actual laws for the land. The Viking Age began in the year 793, when Nordic nations began to sail out in all directions from Norway and Sweden, where they launched raids, enslaved people, and pillaged the lands of Europe and beyond. The term Viking actually comes from the word Vik, which referred to any man that came from the land in between the Cape Lindesnes in Norway and the Gotha River of Sweden. And the Viking Age lasted until around 1050, and then from there, Viking culture is around for a bit, then starts to fall away as other cultures come in. Eric the Red was a famous Viking that sailed to Greenland and established the first settlements there. And his son, Leif Erikson, sailed all the way to Canada to form the eventual Vinland settlements. And the Vikings were such good shipbuilders and craftsmen that some of the ships that have been unearthed by archaeologists are almost in perfect condition because of how strong the wood was bent and made to fit the harsh seas of the north. And both the Vikings I just mentioned were, of course, Norwegian and brought a lot of wealth to Norway through their plundering. Harald Fairhair, who was the chief of the Oslo Fjord, negotiated an alliance with the chiefs of all the other fjords in Norway, including the major ones based in Frostingslag and Gulastingslag, which were two of the major fjords outside of Oslo. But some of the other fjords chiefs were more resistant to a unity, and this is why many wars were fought between 872 and 900 to crown a king or to maintain independence. But at the end of all these battles, Harald actually declared himself king of all Norway, and he was the first to gain this title. And then his son, Eric Bloodaxe, would be his successor and rule from 930 to 935. And yes, Eric Bloodaxe was his proper name. Hakon I was the brother to Eric Bloodaxe and took over after being in England and accepting Christianity. He was a missionary king and tried to convert Norway, but was one of the ones that failed. Then Olaf I, Tyrkvason, who was a descendant of King Harald, led a Viking journey into England around 991 and ended up being baptized by 995. After this, he returned to Norway and claimed to be king as he was a legitimate son of someone descended from Harald, and he was accepted as king. So then he Christianized a lot of Norway's coasts, sometimes by peace and sometimes he forced it upon the areas that were resistant. Olaf II ruled from 1015 to 1028, and it was during his rule that Christianity was fully spread across all of Norway. He fought to keep his kingdom strong and maintain Christian morals and values in Norway. But he did end up dying in battle in 1030. After his death, the majority of chiefs agreed to make him a patron saint and built a giant Gothic church cathedral over his grave. And he is considered the patron saint of Norway as he was the one that got Norway to its fully Christian state, which does define the rest of its history. The end of the Viking Age came as the royalty of the Fairhair family was legitimized by the English throne. And the untimely death of one of the kings meant that any legitimate or illegitimate son of the king could claim that they were now the king. So throughout the 1100s, Norway was ruled by many different joint kings at different areas of Norway, and it was much more regional kings than it was one overall national king. But there wasn't actually a lot of fighting just because these men were brothers, and none of them wanted to kill each other, but they also did eventually want to unite. So there was internal conflict, but there wasn't actual fighting that we can record or know of. But this time of peace did not last, as the growth in power that the church had, along with the expanding power of the monarchy, caused civil war to break out, and the rule of many illegitimate kings came in and out of Norway. Then, the power of the Althing began to be reduced, and the elections were now being dominated by the church, who had gained a lot more representation by the spread of Christianity becoming more and more popular. And this is where things like taking donations and people kind of buying their way into heaven is really pushed by the church. So that's why it ended up with a lot of power because they have a lot of funding. Under King Hakon IV, the fighting ended 
during the Civil War, and the Kingdom of Norway expanded to its greatest size after Iceland and some of the other islands, such as the Faroe Islands and Svalbard, voted to remain alongside Norway. And this time period is from 1217 to 1263. This is the golden age of Norway, so to speak. And Hakon actually fixed the shattered system of succession and made the claim of inheritance by the king's eldest son, Ironclad, so that if you weren't the king's eldest son, your claim to the throne was null and void until that eldest son either died or had his rule. Hakon had many treaties signed with Russia in Novgorod to confirm the legitimacy of his dynasty's rule, which is one of the things that maintained the peace of the Fairhair lineage for a long time. Magnus VI, the Lawmender, became known by this name, the Lawmender, for the strong legal code he created and the way he re-legitimized all the things, which were the legal systems, by modernizing them and bringing the systems of law into power and updating them to modern Christian standards and making them different than they used to be for so long. And the systems he put in place would actually last from this time in the 1200s all the way until the 1600s. The rulers after Magnus VI tried their best to keep stability, but as we usually see, very strong rulers followed by weak ones, and this system failed. The power of the royal family started to decline, and the foreign powers would start to work their way into the Norwegian system. At the same time as this, the Black Death hit the country hard in the 1340s and 50s, and by the end of it, around two-thirds of the population, which was 400,000 people, had died due to some faucet of the plague. And the plague actually ended up affecting the nobility the most because as the death of workers and family members happened commonly to the nobility, it reduced the money they were making and it reduced their claim to any familial inheritance because there was now no family left. And it actually made things post the Black Death better for people who owned fishing companies and farms because now they had a lot of power to provide food and they could charge what they wanted. And the nobility didn't have the money to bully them into making it less, to bully them into making it less. Magnus VII was born to the daughter of Magnus VI and Duke Eric, who was the son of the Swedish king Magnus I. So Magnus VII was elected to the crown of both the Norway and Swedish thrones. Queen Margaret I of Denmark led a union between Norway and then Sweden, which would become the Kalmar Union, and was established fully by 1390. This was created to challenge the Hanseatic League of German knights that were dominating Central and Northern Europe, and this was to defend kind of Scandinavian ideals and everything Nordic keep it all together in one and be able to stand up against this Hanseatic League that was trying to push them out. The Hanseatic League, though, did have a foothold in Bjergen, as a lot of the people there were German, and there was investing in Bjergen that came from the Hanseatic Knights. The Union, the Kalmar Union, reduced the political power of Norway in the Scandinavian politics, and the power of Norway's government was being controlled by the Swedes. Then from here, the Union took Norway's power away and started to exploit its resources, and this is kind of the story we're going to see over and over for a very long time. In 1523, the Kalmar Union changed to Denmark-Norway when Sweden left it, and then in 1536, Norway was downgraded to just a simple province of Denmark rather than an independent nation under Denmark's unity. And the next century would be heavily defined by Danish towns being grown in Norway and further reduction of Norwegian autonomy and resources. This was all in the 1500s, and by the end of the 1500s would be when Martin Luther creates Lutheranism slash Protestantism. And this does end up finding a home in Norway because it was accepted under the rule of Christian III, so Norway becomes Protestant. And then under the rule of Christian IV, the Kalmar Union War began when Denmark and Norway fought against Sweden from 1611 to 1613. This war broke out because Sweden tried to claim that a land that was historically Norwegian was theirs, and they tried to tax it, so then Norway and Denmark banded together their forces and invaded a southern area of Sweden in 1611. The union between Denmark and Norway ended up winning the war, but Sweden was not brutally defeated or crushed in any way, but they did demand reparations for the fortresses that were destroyed by Sweden during this war, and those were to be paid to Denmark. 
And the tensions from this war led to these nations joining the Thirty Years' War, where Christian IV lost major battles in 1626 at the Battle of Luther to the Holy Roman Empire, and this further weakened Norway. And then Christian IV again waged war against Sweden in the Torstensson War, which lasted from 1643 to 1645. This saw another time that Sweden defeated Norway, and parts of it were actually taken away. And this whole 1600s period is just filled with wars, as the Second Northern War was fought from 1655 and 1660. The Second Northern War was fought from 1655 to 1660, and was another net loss for Denmark-Norway, as they couldn't handle Sweden or Russia, who were all fighting in this war. And then, after all this, the Frontier Treaty of 1751 established the current southern and northern borders of Norway, as they were agreed upon by both Norway and Sweden. The Treaty of Kell is signed in 1814, and it saw the end of Danish rule, which ended up rolling right into a unity with Sweden happening because Sweden ended up invading and putting a lot of pressure on Norway to change. And this is where they use their power, and Norway ends up agreeing to become part of Sweden. And just like with Denmark, Norway has very little power. Sweden holds all the power to elect, put in representatives, and have the most money. And it's the same year that Norway does start to create its own systems, though, where this is the first year they elect their own prime minister. The first prime minister was Peter Anker, and the first constitution was actually drafted this year as well. The Romantic, the romantic movement was huge in pushing forward the nationalism of the country. Despite being under Swedish rule, the economy began to thrive as shipping became a huge industry, and the Industrial Revolution swept across the nation in the 1800s, really starting to modernize it. And this all led to Norwegian culture being created, as now there was so much more food, and stuff for this country that doesn't have a huge population that now arts sciences and all that were being studied by Norwegians and people were starting to be proud of being Norwegian being proud of Norwegian inventions and stuff so the growth in the economy coupled with this new nationalistic pride led to an outcry for independence in 1905 Norway finally separated from Sweden as both sides gave up concessions at a negotiation held in Sweden and this was achieved under King Hakon the seventh who ruled from 1905 to 1957 during this time, the South Pole was actually reached first by Norwegian explorers before anyone else. This makes a lot of sense because there's a saying in Norway that Norwegians are born with skis and they're extremely good at winter sports. They're very adapted to the cold because of where they freaking live. And this is shown as it's Norwegian explorers who worked their way all the way to the South Pole. World War One happens next in 1914, and Norway declared neutrality alongside Denmark and Sweden, and the naval presence of the Allied forces ended all trade that was happening between the Nordic countries and Germany, and the submarine warfare of the Germans actually caused a really big anti-German sediment to rise within the Norwegians, and this would have played into interwar politics, but they had some smart politicians say that they needed to maintain neutrality if they were to be seen as legitimate, so despite this kind of growing anti-German feeling, people did not Norway did not actually pursue this when the interwar peace talks were happening. The Great Depression after World War I caused about one-third of the workers to be unemployed in Norway at the worst point of the Depression. However, the economy did stabilize, and by the 30s, after a lot of changes and new people came into power, the production of Norway in its GDP alone was increased by 75% from 1913 to the 1940s. World War II would then break out when, even though Denmark, Norway, and Sweden again declared neutrality. Nazi Germany invaded Norway in 1940, pulling them into the war. And the plan of the Nazis was to hold the royal family hostage and demand a surrender by the Norwegians. But the king and the royal family actually fled to Scotland while the country of Norway was being occupied for a few years, and Norway never fully surrendered. They just dealt with the occupation of the Nazis. Norway ended up being used by the Nazis as a place to launch naval and airstrikes on Britain. And after the war, it was liberated by the Western and Soviet forces in 1945. Post-war, Norway was in shambles. 
This made Norway one of the biggest recipients of the U.S. Marshall Plan, and after receiving a lot of this money, the nation began to stabilize in these new times of peace. The discovery of natural gas helped the nation bring in some money to the economy, and the new wealth allowed the 1960s to be filled with government reform expansion. Welfare, retirement, and other social safety nets were made very easily accessible and made as a standard part of living in Norway. This would be boosted farther when the discovery of natural gas the discovery of natural gas that was made by Norwegians made them think that there had to be oil somewhere in the seas they laid claim to, and they were actually given this claim to this area of the sea near near them because Denmark allowed it. This was an area jointly claimed by Norway and Denmark, and Denmark kind of as a sign of good faith that they no longer were this overpowering force on top of Norway, gave them a lot of this land that is, gave them a lot of this ocean territory, and it wasn't super valuable at the time, but then, in 1969, the Phillips Company, which had been for years trying to find oil, ends up finding it in 1969 in these waters, which are all claimed by Norway. And it isn't just a little bit of oil, it's massive amounts of oil, so much so that Norway ends up being the biggest oil producer for all of Europe, and it's insane. So within a decade, Norway was producing more oil per resident than anywhere else on Earth, and it made small fishing towns become vastly developed as oil rigger towns, and any other coastal towns started to get really heavily developed to bring in oil and just brought in more urbanization and more people. And oil profits and ownership belonged to Norway and the money from it was funneled back into the system because even though there was an oil crash in the 80s which hurt the economy, Norway had already started to diversify their economy by not putting all their eggs in one basket being oil. And that's one of the main reasons they, despite being one of the most oil-rich countries on earth, have had such a better run, both democratic-wise and economy-wise, than the other major oil-running nations, because those countries literally just depend entirely on oil and didn't do a great job diversifying, and they also had a weaker democracy going into the discovery of oil, so the gap between the highest and the lowest people in those countries became really wide. With Norway, it was already such a democracy and people living similar lives, especially it being a smaller population than countries like Iran or Russia. It was much easier to create systems that help people of all lifestyle benefit from oil being discovered. And this ends up being really big as there was a time when each resident in Norway was getting roughly $250,000 in either lifestyle change or direct checks from the government because of how much money was coming in. And this is very impressive, but this isn't all they do because the managing of literal trillions of dollars of oil wealth is not easy at all. So to help, Norway ended up creating the Norway Sovereign Fund. This is a retirement and investing fund that places rules and regulations on how the Norwegian government and the individuals who are specifically in like the oil sector can control the oil wealth. The system limits the amount of foreign investment they can do. It limits the ability for them to invest in pure Norwegian companies. It limits the amount of money they can use to just pull more oil out of the earth and how much oil money they could use to invest in anything. And this system has helped the nation expand its wealth into many areas so that if oil prices drop again like they did in the 80s, the nation will be more than secure. Because the way Norway sees it is that they don't want oil to be the backbone of their economy. They want to have a very strong economy without oil, and oil be this supercharger to make them a really strong nation, and they've done that well. So this fund and the massive oil wealth the country has made, so this fund and the massive oil wealth this country has grown, has made Norway one of the richest nations in the world, and this money has been poured back into the system as education, healthcare, and many other social safety nets are provided by the massive economy of Norway, so long as people pay their taxes and work with the system. And for that reason, Norway is pretty much seen as the most developed nation on Earth, the only country that comes into combatants with it for this ranking on not only the Human Development Index, but just the level that it's seen as fair democracy-wise, 
like on the there's this scale that if you look up it's like kind of literally I think it's called democratic scale and it ranks how free each country is and even the United States has like a 70 or 78 on that scale and and where the CEOs are saying like freedom and blah 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 but Norway ranks as 100 out of 100 it's seen as they have no corruption they have people not being paid off like there's not this the, the elections are free and clear there's many political parties prime minister changes every few years there isn't one party dominating it's really really impressive so Norway ranks at a hundred out of a hundred on that grading scale, which no other country does. The only ones that are close are other Nordic countries that rank in the 98th or 99th percentile, but it's wild. So that gets us to where they are kind of presently. Internally, I do have to acknowledge internationally after the war, Norway joined NATO but remained out of the European Economic Community and the EU after referendums in 1972 and 1994 respectively showed that the majority of citizens didn't want to join. <coughs> For a long time, this put Norway at arms with the rest of Western Europe because of how deeply involved Norway was in Western European politics because of the fact that not only were they a NATO member, but they were also supporting the European economic community, trading into the area, and through, through NATO said that they would support Western Europe no matter what. But either way, they're still out of this now, and they use the Danish krone. They don't use the euro like most of Europe does, and that's why they are the country they are today. So, Right now, this nation sits at the very top of the Human Development Index. It alternates every year between Switzerland and Norway. And it's low corruption, low crime rate, and huge socioeconomic system that might literally be the number one socioeconomic system in the world. Makes Norway one of the greatest countries in the world. It's not all sunshine and dandy. People do mention the fact that it is really expensive to live in Norway. The taxes are very high. Rent is high. Groceries are really high. But because of the social safety nets that are around in the system of Norway, if you either get a degree elsewhere in the world and come to Norway or you grew up in Norway and work with the system, it seems that a lot of things can go really well for you and that jobs pay enough so that the standard of living isn't one that's hard to achieve no matter what your economic status is within this country. So with these great elections and low corruption and all these things, Norway's doing very great for itself. And that's that. That gets us to the end where I always like to leave it with a kind of takeaway or a mindset to pull from this. And with Norway, that's going to be set a higher standard than the one that others have. So I say this with Norway because by every single metric, their peace, their freedom of elections, the standard of living, the quality of life, all these things, Norway is blowing every other country out of the water. And it has been their standard set that has helped pull the other Nordic countries up with them. Denmark, Sweden, Finland all have really great ratings on the Human Development Index. And it's even starting to trickle its way into areas like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. I said that in those orders because Lithuania is the least of those, but Estonia is trying. And it's clear that this region is becoming very proud to be one of the most democratic on earth and work really hard to maintain this. So with that, I say you can apply the same thing, where Norway has set the golden standard of what it's like to be a great free nation. I didn't say perfect, and I will never say perfect, because this nation is not perfect, no nation is perfect, but Norway is pretty freaking close. I say you can do that with yourself, where whatever area you're in, your job, your art form, your workouts, your relationship, set a high standard. Whatever area of your life you're putting time into, you should set a high standard for it and work towards it, because if you are going to set a high standard, you're not only going to impress the people that are ranked above you, let's say your bosses or your professors or someone who's ranked equal to you, like your relationship partner, but you're very likely to pull them up with you. And if the people around you aren't inclined to be pulled up to this new standard you're setting, then you, one, don't really need them in your life, and two, you could start to see what kind of people you have around you. So I just say that with Norway because of all the things they've done, and I just say that that's a really great way to live. I'm not saying you need to be this in every area like it's going to happen overnight, but 
if you know you clock into work and there's areas you could really sharpen up to become a really great worker that will help you don't do it just for other people but do it for you as you'll get better pay you'll get better position become into a better position economically to have a better life outside of it absolutely do it and if you're a writer or dancer or anything in the art space and you're trying to create something set the standard high don't put out work that you think is okay just to meet the deadline take extra time take extra hours work extra hard to make something really incredible and set the standard really high so that if you have a team you're working with you could pull them up to your level or you can impress the people that are either going to pay you or commission you or support you in this by saying hey i create really high quality things your investment or your time is worth it your support means something to me Set a gold standard. Work really hard to set a great standard in your life in every area you can because it's going to make your life better. And if you apply that to every area, you set a gold standard on how hard you work out. You set a gold standard on how hard you recover. You set a gold standard on the way you eat and all these things. If you raise the bar high and set a really high standard for the way you live, you're going to have a high quality of life because now your standard of living has literally just been raised up to this high bar you set for yourself. And the odds are if you have people that are really close to you, interacting with you closely, you're going to pull them up with you, be that your brother, your sister, your partner. People that interact with you heavily, your best friend, they're going to see, wow, you're going crazy, you're disciplined, you're locked in, you work hard at work, you're a great boyfriend slash girlfriend, you're an incredible husband, you're a great father. I want to be the same way. And it's just going to make a net amount of better people in your area and in your life. So do it. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but just think about that anytime you're, in, you're about to take an action. If you're in a moral dilemma, any of these things, choose what you think is the best. going to make the best result, best everything for you and everyone involved because it's going to lead to a better life. And I feel that's exactly what Norway's done throughout their history and done to their people now. And that's why their standard of living is so high compared to most of the rest of the world. So with that, that gets us to the very, very end. And I just want to say thank you so much. I really hope you guys got something out of this. I saw Norway on the list and knew it would be a lot to trudge through because it's a very long history. And of course, I missed some things. I didn't get every king's name down, but I said... Everything I wanted to say, I gave a good survey of the history, which I always like to do, at least in my opinion. If you do not think so, definitely let me know. And either way, I hope you enjoyed it in some way. I hope you learned something, or I hope you got something from the takeaway, or had your own takeaway. And if you did, definitely share with me and let me know. So, just wanted to say again, thank you all so much for being here. And my name is Reese Garlinski. This was Young History, and that was Norway. You guys have a great one.